four score and seven years ago. That's about all I can remember from that. I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Isn't that like the the Jefferson Address? What is that? Like what? Oh, you know there was some like uh, crazy thing back in the day. Like in third grade, you had to memorize that. Yeah, I mean, well, it's familiar now. That was such a cold open, man. I was uh, I was not mentally. I was not. I don't know why that's what came out of my mouth. I was just thinking, like, (laughs) what's a talk that I had to give, that I had to memorize? You know, one of the most monumental presentation speeches of all time, allegedly. Yeah. Do you feel feel like you have to up your game a little bit today? No, because (laughs) here's why. I love it when things happen um, organically. And we didn't even ask today's guests who are, like, public speaking um, gurus. We didn't even ask them what they were going to wear, but the fact that they got the memo, like mentally, like I'm just super pumped for that, you know, right? rocking all black, you know, that's, that's something I've been doing for quite a while. Right. Um, and then you jumped on the gravy train with your SpaceX shirt, maybe Tesla shirt. Today's guests are wearing all black. It's going to be great. Um, it's kind of like the most watched Ted talk, which is around, uh, it starts with one. You got to be the dancer. And uh, building a community around that, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. What about you, Tim? Yeah, I'm excited too. We're international, which is uh, which is super cool. Yes, and Eli, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. How you how, how's it going, guys? We have we didn't get the memo, but we do look damn good, all of us in all black. <laughs> damn right. Uh, if you guys recall, last week's guest Chad Gill had. Um, Introduced us, notified us, told us about these uh, these gents from up north who helped him with his speaking skills, his on stage presence, and we were able to get introduced to them. And the calendar was available, and we we went all uh, all all poutine, baby, if you know what I mean. So uh, we're we're excited. I know nothing else about Canada, so don't expect like <laughs> poutine is all you need to know. That's it. You're good. And and we expect it. We know that if we're going to be speaking to any American, whether it's the two of you, whether it's Chad or anyone else in our network, we know that it always starts by making fun of us just a little bit, but we can handle it. We're funnier than you. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. Um, I'm not exactly sure where I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there. Anyway. <laughs> so, like, do you guys remember your first speaking gigs of all time do you remember kind of what got you into that like because i i feel like i speak for a living right i've gone and done the public speaking thing i used to host a tv show on on abc i've i've been in front of crowds i've done this show i've had other shows i've done countless amount of 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 broadcast across the board and to be honest a lot of times like i still not only get nervous but like I, i i don't enjoy it like i remember the first time i was ever on stage like in third, fourth, fifth grade, I was absolutely terrified. Like it's it's one of those things that I think when people hear some of these stories, they're just like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know how I get over it, right? I don't know how I get through this. But it's it, it's something that I guess because I, you know, quote unquote, speak for a living, it's, it's, it's important to do. And so do you remember your, you know, introduction into the world of performances? 
Yeah, I do. And, and Eli's might be a little different, though. Eli and I have almost identical careers, so he'll probably have a little bit of overlap here. But th the very first time I remember actually like public speaking was th the school system that I was in in my neighborhood in Toronto, Canada, had elementary school and then middle school and then high school. So there were actually three different schools that I went to. And when I, when I was graduating from elementary school in the sixth grade, I was valedictorian in my little elementary school. I actually have my valedictorian plaque somewhere in my office from when I was the sixth grade valedictorian. Oh yeah. And highlight yeah. of his life. Highlight <laughs> of my life and my claim to fame. Um, it's so, it, you know, it was just kind of cute and kind of funny, but I, I remember being absolutely terrified as you say. And that fear sort of stuck with me for most of my life until I was hired out of business school. Eli and I went to business school together and we were hired to be professors right out of business school. And I was absolutely terrified. I mean, prior to this, I was the type of public speaker that would like hide behind my cue cards, speak in monotone, not sleep the night before a presentation. And then getting hired to be a professor, having to engage a room of 100 students in a lecture hall all day, every day, that sort of threw me to the fire in a way that most, I was 22 at the time, most 22-year-olds don't get. So that was my first exposure to like truly public speaking all the time as a career. And that's when I was able to transform that nervousness into mostly confidence. But another thing that you said that's true is that that nervousness kind of never goes away. And, and depending on the context of your presentation, even I get nervous sometimes, but I, I would say that, yeah, it was, I remember my first time public speaking that valedictorian speech. And I remember when I started to transform as a public speaker and it's when I was basically hired to be a full-time public speaker. I didn't have much else of a choice. My, my experience is a little different. I, I don't have a singular moment where I can remember my first time public speaking. I just have like a blur from earlier in my life where I just remember hating it. But also every so often I would do a decent job and I realized like, damn, this is a pretty good skill to have. Like I remember the both of those, that, that duality of emotion of like, I hate this. I never want to do it. It makes me feel like shit. And this sort of, there's some real value here. If I can, if I can get better at this, I can impact people. People regard me differently. Like I saw a lot of both sides of it and the teaching was probably the, the thing that, that, changed everything for me, but it was interesting. I remember when I got hired, actually not even hired, I got the job offer to become a professor at this business school. And I knew what that entailed. I'd have to be in front of students every single day. I, I almost turned it down because I was so terrified of getting in front of 80 students every single day and having to public speak. And I remember I spoke to a mentor of mine who was pretty successful in their career. They were probably 15 years ahead of me. And I told them that that's what I was planning on doing. And I thought maybe there was a better career path for me somewhere else, more in a business than teaching business. And they asked me why. And eventually we got to the heart of the matter, which was, I was just too scared of maybe I was going to screw up and what all these students hate me. And then I have to see them the next week. And it's just like, I was, I was ruminating in my mind about all the things that could go wrong. And what my mentor told me was fear is the best compass. So if you're scared, you should probably just do it. And that's what had me dive in and take the job. And I'm very thankful because even though I did have fear being in front of the crowd, it very quickly became something that acted as my guide. And I started to move more and more towards it, which is both true in business and life in so many capacities, but it's also true in public speaking. If you can start to look at the things that scare you and move towards them rather than away from them, it can actually open up a lot of possibility. 
where do you start when 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 you have a, a new person that says Eli Eric, I suck. I need to get better. Where do you even start? There, it's interesting. It's it's a problem that has many entry points. I would say so. I, I don't know if I'd say there's a single right place to start. If you look at public speaking, a lot of people think public speaking is a skill, but really it's a category of skills. It's sort of a lot like like basketball. You can't really tell because we're virtual, but I'm not the tallest person on the planet, but I grew up really loving basketball. And I remember I wanted to make my high school basketball team. So I, I practiced really hard and I tried to get as good as I could. And eventually I made the team, but I wasn't the best shooter. I wasn't the best passer. I wasn't the tallest. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the fastest, but I got decent at all the little skills. And that's what helped me be competitive. And if you look at basketball, it's, it's not a skill. It's a category of skills, dribbling, shooting, passing, endurance, strength, whatever. Public speaking is the same. And I'd say I would probably start by opening people's mind to the different competencies that exist within public speaking and trying to mm. figure out where they are struggling the most. So, I mean, we can break down what those competencies are. Maybe Eric wants to do that. But the first thing I would do is probably educate on what the different components are of public speaking and then maybe figure out where's the struggle point. And that would be the entry point into improvement. Do you guys feel yeah. that anybody could be a public, a great public speaker? That is our thesis. That is why we do what we do. If we didn't believe that, we would be frauds in our opinion, right? If I'm going to go into companies and teach their staff how to public speak, if I'm going to run programs trying to make keynote speakers out of entrepreneurs, I have to believe it's possible. And I don't just believe it's possible. I'm certain it's possible because I experienced a transformation myself. I know hmm. what it's like to be terrified, to be horrible. I remember that time. And I know what it's like now. And what I also know is how easy that transformation can be when you know what that transformation needs to entail and what it needs to look like. So yeah, we don't just believe it's possible for anyone to be an amazing public speaker. We're certain of it. Um, and to sort of piggyback on what Eli was saying into your earlier question, really public speaking, is just about four competencies. It's about what you say and how you say it. That's your content and your delivery. Sometimes it's about visual aids, but mostly, it's about the fourth box, the fourth thing, the fourth, you know, sub skill within public speaking, which is mindset, you know, overcoming fear, overcoming nervousness, imposter syndrome, and showing up confidently when you have a high stakes scenario. And because, well, one of Eli and I, one of our core beliefs is that the biggest difference between the world's best public speakers and everyone else, it's not about the strategies they know. Strategies are important, of course, you know, if you have a kick-ass storytelling framework or a kick-ass speech, uh, a pitch framework, or if you know exactly how to make an unbelievable looking slide deck, those things matter. But what matters most is mindset, going from scared to confident. And if that's the biggest difference between the world's best public speakers and everyone else, that's where we like to start. And that's why we know it's possible for anyone to be an amazing public speaker. Because if we can change your mind, the rest just follows. Everyone knows what good public speaking looks like. Everyone can identify it when they see it, but they're afraid to do it themselves. So if we can unlock the mindset piece, everyone can be amazing. A few years ago, I'd heard this interesting concept from someone who sounded like they were scared, but knew that they wanted to get better at it. And they, they told me this story from a, a concept of a business development or a salesperson where they were like, I hate making sales calls, but I get in character 
and then I go and and I'm okay, and so I'm someone else, right? I'm a big fan of professional wrestling. I'm a big I'm a big like WWE wrestling kind of guy. I, I'm interested if you guys are wrestling fans as can- Canadians, but um, no, oh. Can't Eli, say we're, kicking, we're kicking you off. Zach, I'll, I'll see Zach, myself. Let's out. Zach, you know our sport. You don't even need to ask. We're hockey fans. Not uh, you can tell fans. just from the hair. I don't even know. Exactly. Go Sabres. Um, but the the concept of becoming a character or becoming slightly maybe someone different than than you are. Do you guys believe in that? Is 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 that one of the strategies on, on ways that you guys help them or is that just kind of like the most ridiculous thing that you ever heard that to kind of get better you become someone else as this you know character so well welcome i'd back. say yeah thanks for, thanks for having me back i appreciate <laughs> yeah, you letting yeah. me back in yeah i'd say I, I don't fully agree with it i think there's some utility to having a sort of persona it's almost like a mask and you put on your mask and that's what allows you to show up in those moments. But our sort of big philosophy is that the best public speaking happens when you take off the masks and you put yourself out there for people to see and own the fact that, yeah, people might not like what you have to say and people might judge you and you could fail. And all of these things are possible, but it's, it's what's going on up here that catastrophizes and makes that into something so much more than it is. And so our, if you think about the ultimate scenario of wearing masks is acting, that's where someone literally is playing a character that is not themselves. There's a bit of a protective mechanism there because let's say I put on this mask of this character and I go and I act and people don't like that character. Then I can say, well, that's fine. That's not me. That's just the character, but that's not me. And I get to use that mask almost like as a shield. But if I take off the mask where public speaking, you're, you're ideally not playing a character. You're just being yourself in front of a crowd. You take off that mask. If people don't like what they see, then that is you. And there's a vulnerability that comes with it. So our opinion is not that having a mask or a persona or a character that you use to feel more comfortable is a bad thing. It can help people. And if depending where you are in your journey, that's helpful to you, then by all means. But I'd say if you want to continue on your journey, ideally you want to get to a point where you can stand up there, whether it's on a virtual stage, a live stage, a boardroom, whatever, but be in front of people and be yourself and own yourself, whether they like it or not, whether they agree with what you're saying or not, whether it goes perfectly or not, that's, I think, true north. Hashtag go north. <laughs> it's a terrible joke. I should see myself out again. That is Damn a it. terrible joke. Damn and Eli, it. The, the hashtag is we the north, not go north. Yeah, I screwed it, <laughs> I, I screwed it up on so many levels here. So many levels. I, I, I would agree with what Eli said mostly. I think that if, if putting on a mask or playing a character is going to unlock confidence in you, well, then you can play with that. That, that, that might be a decent thing because like I said, our belief is the biggest difference between the world's best public speakers and everyone else is confidence. So if that helps you find your confidence, you can play around with that sort of concept. But ultimately being authentic and being vulnerable, those really endear you, th- those things really endear you to an audience. People can sense authenticity, they can sense vulnerability and people tend to like the most authentic and the most vulnerable people. So if you can be yourself, that's ultimately what you want. And you should be able to, because another philosophy that we have is there's no right way to public speak. I mean, if I were to ask you your favorite public speakers, I mean, let's do it. Let's have the discussion. So Tim, Zach, just tell me a few of your favorite public speakers. There's no right answer here, obviously. I don't know that I look at people like that. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I recognize people that they, you know, that I can, 
that I'm drawn to them mm-hmm. and those that like are not on their A game, so to speak. Um, yeah, fair enough. I mean, the, the way the discussion normally goes when we have it, and you don't need to have a favorite, but yeah, we, we, we like to have a discussion around like, what is good public speaking? If we're going to teach you to get better, then we've got to define the North Star, right? we got to know where we're going. So if we do that by example. And people name folks like Steve Jobs and like Oprah Winfrey and like Tony yeah, Robbins yeah. and comedians like Jim Carrey, whatever. Yeah, um, I was going to bring and, up comedians. Or musicians yeah. was my other one off that. Sure, I mean, yeah. th- th- that's speaking to some degree, obviously. Um, but But the purpose there is, I mean, if you look at Steve Jobs and Oprah Winfrey, they're both incredible. You might like one more than the other as your personal preference, but they are so wildly different and everyone can agree, personal preferences aside, they're both so damn good. So if that's the case, that's a good case study and there is no one right way to public speak. So you don't need to play a character. You can play yourself. There's no right way to do this. Right. I mean, I just think about it from the uh, the political aspect. I mean, how mm-hmm. what percentage of people vote for the person they vote for based on the charisma and their ability to connect with the people that they're talking to. I mean, I I would bet it's a huge majority like, Hey, I identify with this person. So you get my vote. Um, Yeah. I mean, how else are they going to. Well, it's not. Yeah. Very few. It's going to be facts based. Yeah. I mean, people probably don't even know what, what the platform is for most politicians. They're just like, Yeah. yeah, this, this person's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to get too political because uh, the political climate of the planet right now is a little bit heated. <laughs> but I can right. tell you that from our view up here in the north, uh, <laughs> that's why Barack Obama was president was because he was such an amazing public speaker. Like him, right. hate him, yeah, like his policies, yeah. don't like his policies. I think most people could probably agree because he was such a damn good speaker that he became president of the United States. That, that's it. That's the one thing. People probably right. don't remember his platform, but he was just such a good speaker. And boom, president. Many of our uh, many of the, the audience uh, today are early stage founders, and I think that one of the biggest hurdles that they face is that imposter syndrome. How do how do you work with people to get over that imposter syndrome, with it, so that they can get up on stage and speak with confidence uh, when they're pitching their business or talking to potential clients? I mean, imposter syndrome is a big thing, but I think it it actually just stems from a false premise. So I, let me say this, I, I don't think I'm going to solve people's imposter syndrome in a moment uh-huh. here, but this insight might be useful to some people. The, the typical interpretation of imposter syndrome is feeling like you're not good enough for the situation you're in or the, the challenge you're trying to tackle. Like I'm not good enough. But if you actually really analyze it, it stems from this false assumption that everyone else is. It's like imposter syndrome is me saying I'm flawed, but everyone else is perfect. But when you start recognizing that nobody's perfect, you you don't have to hold yourself to this standard of perfection. So I think I can speak from my experience. I sometimes do feel like I'm not good enough for the moment. I sometimes do feel like this is above my pay grade. Like I have feelings like that. And I think those are normal human feelings. And once you sort of match the scenario you're in, it's natural human tendency, especially for people who want to start a business or be an entrepreneur or founders you're going to raise the bar and then you're going to feel like less than. So I think these are natural feelings to have where it becomes problematic in my opinion. And where it became problematic for me is that when I felt that way, I let that become all consuming and then it would change the way I perceived every situation I was in. 
It changed the decisions I made, the actions I took, how well I took the actions. Like it just became the filter through which everything happened. And then what shifted for me is when I started having feelings like that and I started letting those feelings be and then recognize that nothing in the world is perfect. No person is perfect. Everyone else is struggling in some way, shape or form. And that's the nature of the game. Like you're supposed to have challenges and you're supposed to not be perfectly matched to the situation you're in. There should be gaps. And when you close those gaps, you should set new gaps and then close those. And when I started coming to terms with that's the reality of the game, that's what helped me overcome it a little bit. Hmm. So if I could bring it to a singular thesis here, it would be imposter syndrome is not just thinking that you're not enough. It's that thinking everyone else is perfect. And that is a flawed assumption. So you said you went to business school together. You used to work for tech startups. Then somehow you get into this career. You do like, what was that transition? Like, how did you guys come about? Like, this is, this is what we want. There's going to be enough demand. We can help these individuals. How, how did the, how did that come to about? Ooh, that's so interesting. Well, it, it came to be just sort of naturally because we went to business school to become rich bankers or consultants, but instead we became professors and we started our careers teaching. And when you start your career, you know, lecturing lecture halls every single day, you become good at public speaking. Then we had this entrepreneurial itch. So we wanted to work for a high growth tech startup because we didn't have an idea yet. So we did that and we worked for the same tech startup here in Toronto together. And then what we noticed was people noticed that we were good public speakers and it sort of put us on the map and people started coming to us, asking us for advice. How can I become a better storyteller like you? How can I be more engaging like you? How can I get over my fear? How can I make my slide deck look sexy? And we really liked giving people public speaking advice because in essence, it's the only thing that we're good at. So we decided that maybe teaching people how to public speak full time is what we should be doing here. So the very first thing we did was we decided to come up with a name of our business. And we decided that we wanted our business to be called Speakeasy, sort of a play on the word, right? Speaking can be easy and a speakeasy. So the very first thing we did is we Googled Speakeasy to see if that already existed. And we learned a very valuable lesson in entrepreneurship, I think, just sort of organically when we found this, because we found that there was already a company based out of, I think, Hong Kong, Boston, San Francisco, they have a few offices called Speakeasy that does public speaking training. And I think most people, when they see that, they would think, ah, shit, well, someone else already has our idea, so we should do something else because someone's already playing that game. But what we decided to do is we decided to look at their careers page and look at the about us page and see how many employees they had. And they had something like 45 employees. And we looked at that one fact, this company in public speaking training with the exact same name that we want, like doing exactly what we want to do. They've got over 40 employees. Well, there must be a demand for this and there must be more demand than they're capturing. They can't possibly be capturing the entire market. So we looked at that sort of as proof of concept. This public speaking training company is large. They're big. They, they employ people. They're part of their livelihoods. So there must be room for us too. And it turned out that that assumption was correct. That's interesting. That, that's an interesting, uh, I've, not, I've not heard of that approach before. That's pretty cool. Yeah, See a bunch I, of companies doing what you do and you look at it as, as uh, product validation rather than yeah. something to dissuade you. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a, there's your way to do it, right? So just mm -hmm. because Speakeasy was doing it this way, and that that works, right? I, I'm I'm assuming if you know they have 40 plus employees, that enough people are seeing that, 
And then, but you have your own kind of way that you guys have figured out throughout your way. It's like, well, there's something there. And there's obviously a bunch of people that are asking these questions. And so when people like are like, oh, well, someone else is doing it. I, I shouldn't do that. Like, it's almost like, well, do you really want to do this? Like, do you really, do you really want to, like, you're like, do you really have that entrepreneurial itch or do you just like watching Shark Tank and you're, you want to be the only person in, in there? Cause there's stuff like, you know, McDonald's and Burger Kings and, and the, the Rite Aids and the Walgreens of the world. They all are literally just across the street from each other. And it's like they feed off of each other. And it's that same mm -hmm. concept of, hey, like the more of these things means the more people are going to be attracted to go to these places. Like it's a it's a big opportunity. And I don't know, I guess just people. I think it's a real common misconception with entrepreneurship is you need to invent the next Uber or invent the next Facebook or invent the next Airbnb. That is one type of entrepreneurship, but that is not the only type. As far as I'm concerned, you can you can paint the lines in parking lots as your business if you want to. Just do it better, cheaper, with a bigger smile. I don't know. Anything is entrepreneurship. How I just do, think that's Hollywood. You... I think that's Hollywood doing that. They're saying yeah, it needs to be that that exact thing. If you really look at it, like we were talking about before, thumbnails and stuff like that. That's the way that you watch Netflix. The way that you're scrolling Facebook. There's nothing different in that than 20, 30 years ago, other than it's being done digitally. It's the exact same thing. And I, in 20, 30 years, when these things are gone, there's going to be another thing. And it's going to be basically recycling the old way and doing it the new way. And that's fine. Like that's, there's nothing the matter with that. Like that's, and obviously Netflix multi-billion dollar business has done well. Like. Agreed. It's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. I'm curious how you guys get people to like, cross that bridge, so to speak, cut the rope. Like, like it's like going to the dentist. You're like, gosh, man, I hate public speaking. This is going to hurt, mm. but I know I got to do it. You know? So how do you get people in? And then how do you keep them going through that, that pathway to, to greatness, to become a public, a great public speaker? That's a good question. So, I mean, how do we get people in our business? We're seven and a half years into our business and we've, we've grown predominantly through word of mouth. So one of our biggest beliefs is that if you genuinely can help people and, and fulfill the promise that you make, then they are going to tell people about it. And then those people are going to want what those, what their friends, colleagues, peers got. So for us, how we get people interested and willing to go to the proverbial dentist here is we help people that they know, and they then tell their friends and those friends then come to us wanting the same thing. So that's been a huge driver for our business. And a big belief that we have in anything we build, whether it's new curriculum, new packaging or products, whether it's live, virtual, anything that we build to help people, we have the belief that if people aren't going and telling people and wanting to talk about it at dinner and 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 just spreading the good word, then we haven't built something valuable enough. So that's how we create interest. And we're, we're starting to play with some more marketing stuff and other ways to scale our business. But in terms of how we get people interested to want to go to the dentist is we make the dentist experience so damn good and so damn valuable that people's teeth feel so clean at the end and all they want to do is smile to everyone that they encounter. And the other thing we do, oh, sorry, yeah. Eli, I thought you were finished. Go ahead. Please go for it. The, the, the other thing that we do is you remember when you were a kid and your mom forced you to go to the dentist? We are predominantly going into businesses and teaching their staff. Yeah. So mom or VP or CEO or whatever, 
they're noticing a gap. They're noticing my employees are not good enough at communicating. Either they're, they don't know how to storytell or they're not confident enough. They're clearly nervous on these calls. This is having real uh, negative impact on our business. The fact that we're not good at communicating to our clients, our prospects internally to each other. So they force their employees to be in that room, whether they like it or not. So that, that's one way to go to the dentist is because mommy told you to, and she drove you here and go ahead. You got to get out of the car and go. We're going to strap you down. Yeah, It's interesting. Like I feel like everyone is a salesperson, no matter what their, their job is. Right. And everyone is constantly performing, whether they're on stage or not. And so people, I don't know, people maybe push back on that, but it's like, when you're selling something, right? Like, let's say you're not actually a salesperson, but you're a designer, a graphic designer. When you're uh, taking that design and you're showing someone it, you have to get their approval to, to like that thing. And so the way that you explain that, if you just show it to them and you know it's a little different, they might be like, well, what the heck is this? This is, this is garbage. But if you tell a story and you create a performance behind it and be like, oh, this is why we did it this way, Right. Just like you guys wanting to put together, you know, speakeasy to start. Right. It was like, okay, this is there. There was that story. It made sense. Right. When you're selling something, if there is no story there, I think you're losing the opportunity to get those, uh, those individuals invested. And by telling a better story in there and kind of showcasing it and then showing them, they're like, oh, well, now I get it. Now I'm in there. So then they're invested. And it's not just like this thing is the most obnoxious thing I've ever seen in my life. There's a story behind it and, it and it helps kind of move it along. Yeah, you couldn't be more right. We, we always say that, that it's, you know, people look at sales as only one thing. I'm, I'm either selling a product or service or I'm not in sales. That's wrong. People are selling ideas all day, every day in business, in their lives. And that's what public speaking is. It's getting your ideas into other people's heads, getting buy-in, getting them motivated, whatever, selling ideas exists in any role in any industry and it's not the best ideas that get adopted we always like to say that it's the best communicated ideas that do so we couldn't agree more with that sentiment that if you're not only selling if you're selling a certain product or service everyone is selling all the time it's just ideas instead of things there there's different there's roles that have more of that than other roles but every sure. role has it to some degree and depending on where you want to go in your career you're going to likely need more of it. Like I think about a software developer. This is a person sitting, writing code majority of their time. And if they want to move up in their career, then eventually they might want to manage people or maybe they want to continue to become a world-class coder, but then teach other people some of the things they've learned about world-class code. Well, if you're going to manage a team, you're going to have to make presentations. You're going to have to create team alignment. You're going to have to motivate. You're going to have to educate within the walls of the business. And if you wanted to go the thought leader approach, you're going to educate better when you're a better communicator, when you can craft a narrative, when you can engage people and when you can make it visually appealing and value adding. So there's there's no world where you don't benefit from improving these skills. And there are certain roles where you benefit even more than other roles, but all, all roles benefit from improving here. From the, from the storytelling aspect, are there like foundational building blocks to, a, to telling a story? Like, like when you're working with someone, like you have to have the, these four things in that story to end with the, if, on the high note or whatever. I mean, it, do you guys get into that? Yeah, we do. I would say th there's a, there are lots of building blocks, but if, if I could articulate one, it's actually something that I think 
there's a lot of confusion when it comes to story and confusion is always the enemy of action and effective action. So if, if there's one thing, one foundational piece around story that I would share with people, it's the idea that there's a difference between story structure and storytelling. Like these are not the same things. Storytelling, it's, it's anecdote. There's a character who experiences something. It's the time little Timmy really wanted a dog, but his parents said no. So he built a PowerPoint presentation to convince his parents to get a golden retriever and they did and he was really happy. Like you can picture little Timmy building the presentation. There's a time, there's a place, there's a sequence of events. That's storytelling. Story structure doesn't require a protagonist. It doesn't require climactic moments. Hmm. It doesn't require the vivid specificity, but it requires this sort of narrative continuity to it so that people can really follow the flow of ideas. Great public speakers are both very good at crafting content that has story structure and injecting anecdotes within to take certain ideas within that narrative arc and make those ideas really compelling. And the distinction between story structure and storytelling, it's one that can take a bit of time to really wrap your head around. But when you do, it open up, opens up a world of possibility. Presentations are not anecdotes. They can contain anecdotes. And the ability to craft narrative presentations that contain anecdotes, that's the, the secret sauce. And I think understanding the distinction opens up a lot of potential. Wow. Eric, anything to add? <laughs> I would say one thing that people get wrong is they, they start by thinking, what's the story I want to tell? Rather than starting with, what's the point I want to make here? If you've heard bad storytellers before, what likely is happening is there's no purpose to the story. At the end of the story, you're sitting there being like, why the hell did you just tell me that? There's no punchline. There's no lesson. There's no moral. So what you need to do if you want to be a good storyteller is you need to start at the end. You need to start with, why am I telling this? What's going to be the lesson? What's the point I'm going to be making through this story? What's the moral of this story? And if you start there and then you figure out what story can I tell that actually does that, that's a much better way of doing it than the other way around. Interesting. Bye. I mean, the thing that's it's so challenging is that when you see good speakers, they make it look so easy. And then, but, but what people don't see behind the scenes is they've worked for hours or weeks or months to perfect that craft. And so that as an outsider, you, they, anybody thinks they can just jump up on a stage, grab a microphone until the lights are on them. Then they're like, oh, this is much more difficult than I thought that it was going to be. I mean, it's just- but It actually, if you know how to do it right, it is easy. That's why it looks easy mm. because it's easy once you know how. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, I mean, Eli and I, we've been developing our curriculum. We continue to develop our curriculum today, even though we're seven and a half years into our business and we've already trained thousands of people. We're still trying to make it better. We're still trying to find the answers. But I can tell you that from day one, when we started building our curriculum to today, what we've done constantly is how can we make this easier? How can we make this more accessible? How can we make this easier? How can we make this easier? And when you can make something easy for someone, that's the jackpot, right? And what we have discovered is indeed public speaking is easy once you know what to do. Storytelling is easy once you know what to do. But there's a lot of complexity between the, the easy solution and starting out. So what you might need is um, you know, either a lot of discovery or the right trainer or the right course. But it, it, in my opinion, and it might be a little bit controversial, is 
it doesn't just look easy because someone has spent 10,000 hours doing it. Mm. It looks easy because it's easy once you know how to do it right. Thanks for the so question. How do you do it right? But yeah. Right. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and why is it easy? What's easy about it? Yeah, we, we can talk about that if you want. I, I could talk a little bit about why why it's easy, unless you guys have a different question or direction. No, you no, want to no, take no. It. Yeah, that, dig in. Okay, so so if we think about those four pillars that Eric mentioned earlier: content, delivery, visuals, and mindset. We'll take visuals out of it because that's sort of your PowerPoint, Google Slide skills. It's can you make a circle sort of thing. But let's use content, delivery, and mindset for a moment. Content, if you break it down to to its most basic thing, it's just an idea. That's all it is. And do human beings have ideas in their brains? For sure. The brain, it's, it's literally a database of ideas. And it's an always growing database because every time you read a tweet, read a book, have a conversation, watch a Netflix show, new things are coming into your head. And so you, you absolutely have the capacity to put ideas into the world because you have them in your head. So that's one piece of content, ideas, and everybody has them. The next piece of content is the stringing together of ideas. And can human beings do that? For sure. If we give them a bit of structure, can they do it even better? 100%. If I were to tell someone to make a presentation on the topic of YouTube right now, they might go, well, what am I supposed to say? But if you ask yourself, do you have ideas about the topic of YouTube? Do you have thoughts, ideas, opinions, knowledge, information inside of your head about that? For sure you do. How do you string it together? If I gave you a random structure like, well, tell me what YouTube is, then tell me what's good about it, then tell me what's bad about it, and then tell me what you recommend people use it for. All of a sudden, that structure helps you start to pull the ideas out of your head and string them together. So if we start to actually break down what are like the base units of these competencies of content, and we can do the same with delivery, you start realizing that, of course, everyone has the potential to do this stuff because we're tapping into things that are very natural, automatic things that happen for people every single day, when you give a little bit of structure and a little bit of strategy, it becomes a lot easier. Delivery, I'll just go in very briefly. Delivery is body and voice. And every human being uses their body and voice. It's, it, and people don't even think about it. It's unconscious. If, if you're dealing with a loved one who just suffered some form of loss, maybe they lost a job or maybe they lost someone personal to them, people don't have to think about what to do with their body and voice to convey a little bit of empathy. It just sort of happens naturally for people. And so if that's true then people can learn how to use this vehicle quite quickly and quite easily in a really impactful way when they're speaking to a crowd. And then from a mindset perspective, if you look at the base component there, it's really people's capacity to confront fear and move through it. And a lot of people do this in every facet of their life. Everybody does it when they're babies, before they have consciousness, when they learn to walk and they fall over and they keep going and they keep learning. So if the base competencies are there, then everybody has the potential to be great. And if you give a little bit of structure to it, people can do it quite quickly and easily. So I have this thesis, we'll use that word, the word of the day. Sure. Uh, the content is the constant and your audience is the variable, right? So a lot of people are, are trying to be seen and they think they have to constantly be changing their content. Hmm. And I'm like, you're actually, if you constantly change it and it's a different audience every single time, you're basically you're doubling the effort when it doesn't have to be like that. And so when you look at your comedians, when you look at your musicians, when you when you look at a lot of these performances out there, the audience is constantly changing. 
So that means that the the content that you do can be the exact same, basically the exact same thing over and over and over again. And so I constantly urge anyone that that is kind of broadcasting. It's like, hey, maybe do the exact same thing over and over again. Not only do you get better at it because it's easy, right? But not only are you getting better at it, you're also, because you're saying that same thing over and over again, those words that you want people to hear are starting to resonate with different audiences and you're able to, to sprinkle that out there to get that out there. And so it's, it's, it's once you figure out, you know, that structure, that content to do, and then deliver it to, you know, a bunch of different groups, that's how you start getting seen. And so it's, I think that's a, that, that's thesis. That's, that, that's important. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more with that thesis. That's exactly I, how we I, I just have to too. say one thing. I agree oh with it, and I want to hear what Eric has to say, but the word of the day is clearly North, not thesis. So come on. <laughs> yeah, right. but we can't say North if you already screwed it up in the way that you were trying to do it originally. So we, we yeah, have Eli, to. Yeah, you ruined it. Yeah, you've ruined it, you know? Um, no, you've that's ruined the, it, you're fired, et cetera. That's the name of my favorite uh, book, but we're we're not even going to be able to do this. I mean, it's it's your fault, yeah. Eli. Oh, it's, it's terrible. I, I, I agree with you though, Zach, it, 100%. That is it. You do not need to continually change your content. In fact, if you have the answer to something, you'd be disingenuous if you kept changing it, right? We have the answer for how to be a good public speaker. So do we have to now change our presentation if we're speaking to an engineering team versus a sales team? I think that would be the last thing that we would want to do. What we'd want to do is maybe just add a layer. How is this relevant? Why is this relevant for people in sales? How is this relevant? Why is it relevant for people who are entrepreneurs? How is it relevant? Why is it relevant for people who are engineers? And the answer is different for all those groups. Sure. But ultimately what I'm going to share with you is exactly the same. I don't care what industry you're in, how senior or junior you are in your career. I, I don't care about any of those things. The answer for being a good public speaker is this, but here's why it's relevant for you in sales because you got to sell products. And here's why it's relevant for you in engineering because you got to sell ideas to your team. And here's why it's relevant for you as an entrepreneur, because you might want to be a thought leader and you're going to be leading people. But the ultimate answers are the same. You just got to ask that relevancy piece. You don't need to change what you're saying. You just got to ask, how is it relevant? And add that one sentence to, to your frame. That's it. We're the North. <laughs> oh, damn you. Uh, too good. Uh. On the, uh, I'm curious on the delivery side, when you have the person who is clutching to the podium uh, and trying to make themselves as small as possible, or they're not, they don't have the animation that, that, that they should have, or uh, using it effectively, how do, how do you change that behavior? How do you work with folks in that sense? You teach them a little bit about fear because that's the reason why they're doing it. And then you force them to do things outside of their comfort zone. So if someone is clutching the podium and they're being a shell of themselves, clearly they're not being animated. They're not being engaging. They're not triggering any emotion in how they say what they're saying with their delivery. The reason every time is they're afraid. Every time the reason is fear. So there are two ways through fear. You can understand your fear more and then outsmart it. And, or you can take action outside of your fear, right? So ultimately, let's say I wanted to get over my fear of heights. Well, I should, or, or my fear of flying, maybe. Well, it's important for me to understand that flying is a safe mode of transportation. You're more likely to die in a car than you are in an airplane. Turbulence isn't so bad. It's just a different type of wind and planes don't go down because of turbulence. That's understanding. And that might help me get over my fear. 
But ultimately, I've got to get in the airplane, right? Or maybe better yet, I should go skydive, do something really extreme that flies in the face of my fear. Public speaking is the same. We can teach you why you're afraid and we can talk about why you're afraid and we can tell you that actually your audience isn't rooting against you, they're rooting for you, blah, blah, blah. That's the understanding piece. But ultimately, we need to get you to take action. We need to get you in the plane. And with your example, getting in the plane for that person who's clutching the podium might mean running across the stage, doing something really extreme that flies in the face of their fear. If you're speaking too quiet, well, then we need to get you to yell. If you're horrible at using silence, well, then we need to get you to use a nice long 15 second silence. You need to take extreme action in the face of your fear. And on the other side of that is a realization of, holy shit, why was I so afraid? This is actually easy. And yeah. that's what we need to get people to do. And that's what we get people to do in our course. We can't just yeah. say, well, why don't you try not reading your notes? No, we need to get you to do something absolutely lunatic fringe. Nope. And then maybe yeah. you'll realize you didn't need to be so afraid after all. <laughs> I definitely don't view myself as a podium clutcher by any by any stretch. But I, but when I do, when, I, when I'm up on stage and I watched, and I feel like I'm like over animating myself. And then I go mm -hmm. watch the replay and I'm like, that wasn't even close to being over animated. And then, you know, then I start thinking, how the heck could I even be more extreme than I already am? I, it just, it, it almost feels uncomfortable. So I guess I just need to like, just continue diving well, into the, the uncomfort. There's a little bit of a misconception in, in your frame there, which is uh -huh. that animation is required. Animation is required some of the time. Remember, there's no right way to public speak. So, Steve Jobs, let's take one of our earlier examples versus Oprah Winfrey, okay? Oprah is animated. She's screaming, yelling, giving away cars. Steve Jobs was actually a little bit more intellectual, subdued, he used suspense rather than excitement. So I, I think that it's important that people recognize that. You don't totally need to be something that you're not. There's no right way to public speak. And the intellectual suspenseful way might be as good as the as the excited animated way mm -hmm. but ultimately what you need to do is you need to be able to do both just because you choose to and that's what we try to help people do is access all the different things that are possible and now you can go and choose which ones you want to use that are in line with your authenticity but animated is one of the things that you need to be able to pull on just because you choose to whether it's because your microphone stopped working or you really want to get your audience excited or, or whatever the case may be, you need to be able to do any of the things. What about you don't um, necessarily just need to be animated the whole time. What about just your general thoughts on liquid courage? <laughs> One of our favorite things to say is that there's only two things that cause people to black out in the world. It's alcohol and public speaking. Like those are the two. Uh, our, our, our take is, our take is, it's not the same as real courage and real courage is what you're ultimately after. Listen, if, if, if taking a shot of a nice bottle of bourbon is going to help you feel a little bit better for a big wedding speech or something power to you, our, our net opinion is there is no substitute for genuine comfort in your own skin in front of the crowd. There's no comfort. There, there's no substitute for that. And the, the, the word that Tim you used earlier around just move closer towards that discomfort that's ultimately what people have to start doing. That fear has to be the compass because the skills aren't hard. Like if someone's stuck at the podium, the skill of walking, not hard. 
everybody's got that skill in spades. Everybody walks and believe it or not, they walk and talk. It's like so available to people, but there's that discomfort that causes us to shrink because it's safer to be small. And then the moment you start to build that courage from within, not because it's going to go perfectly, nobody can guarantee that for you, but because you're willing to take on the risk, recognizing that even if it goes south, it's adversity and you might have to deal with that, but you'll be okay. And you can even learn from it and become better in your life and your career and your business. When you start to just build that from within, everything becomes better, including your ability to walk and talk, including your ability to show up in high stakes moments without a shot of bourbon. So go for it, but it's not the same as real courage. Would have been a beer for me, not a shot, but <laughs> yeah. you know. All right, fair enough to each thing. Um, I haven't done that in a while, but there were definitely some big talks that I had done in my life <laughs> that um, I definitely needed some liquid courage. Um, go for it. So, yeah. Are, are y'all friends? Me and Eli? Yeah. Yeah, we're best friends. Okay, and you own a business together? Like, Correct. How, the dynamics of that, how do you guys deal with fights? How do you guys deal with any of that stuff? Because it's interesting, like, a lot of people would say, don't go into business with your family. Don't go into business with your friends. Were you advised that before? Like, it, were you worried about that? Have you guys almost never, have you guys almost lost your friendship, almost lost the business? Like, have there have there been moments in that? And how did you get through them? Or has it just been, you know? Canadians don't routine? get angry. I don't know that. No, I only know I know one. Angry. I know a couple of things about Canada. I know we the North. I know poutine. Um, I know they don't like they don't like the, wrestling. The, the friendly na friendly neighbors to the North. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, go for it. You like go ahead. I was I was gonna actually speak on behalf of you, so you might as well start, and I'll fill in the blanks. <laughs> All right. <fair. laughs> So we for sure were conscientious about it when we decided to do this. We we spent a lot of time talking about the nature of, of what it might mean. And there, there was two very important conclusions we came to at the beginning. Before I share them, I'll just say, people do give advice, don't go into business with friends or family, that sort of stuff. I think a better piece of advice is not do it or don't do it. But if you're going to do it, be thoughtful about how you do it is probably the, the ultimate insight there. But two things that we spent a lot of time thinking about and that we came to conclusions on were how do we distinguish between the importance of our friendship and our business partnership? And we came to the conclusion that friendship will come first 100% no matter what. And that was a very important thing to set as a foundation. And we, we've reminded ourselves of that. We hold that top of mind very frequently. And I think that's pretty important for us, knowing that no matter what happens, our friendship is going to take precedence. So we're falling back on that. The second thing that we spent a lot of time thinking about that we came to a conclusion on is how do we want to disagree? Like, how do we want to go through disagreements? Because we're going to have a child together now. And we're going to care about this thing a lot. We're both going to be very invested in it. And we may have different opinions. So how do we want to go through those disagreements? And we built a sort of framework and structure for ourselves. I don't think it would be something that would work for everyone, but we built sort of values that we adhere to. I'll get just an example of one is there's no such thing as right. So that's a very important value when you're going to have disagreements. Let's both come to the table knowing I don't have right, I have an opinion. And you don't have right, you have an opinion. Now let's debate them. So we came up with values. We came up with a sort of process, this like monthly meeting we have where it's all about going into disagreements. And we sort of set our minds before we get into that conversation, which can get a little animated at times. So I think it's just having thoughtfulness and, and a couple priorities in mind. And that's sort of some of the stuff that we've done. Eli almost you, decided you not to go into business with me. I remember that when we were working for this tech company 
And we were just, you know, we both had that entrepreneurial ish. Like I said, we used to go out for lunch every week, just the two of us, screw the rest of the colleagues. This is Eric and Eli time every Tuesday. And we talked about our entrepreneurial ambitions and our ideas and starting a business together. And I remember Eli was dangerously close to saying, no, we're too close as friends. The answer is no, I can't go into business with you. And I remember vividly challenging him on that, telling him, listen, I'm going into business. I need a co-founder. You are my first choice. So I will find someone else if I have to, but I'd really like it to be you. Why can't we go into business together? And what we realized by the end of that meeting was Eli was worried about radical honesty. Can I be as honest with Eric as I know is going to be required without any judgment, without any fighting, without any fallings out? Um, can I be that honest? And so we had a real like open honesty session. And by the end of that session, I think what Eli realized was, oh my God, not only can I be honest with Eric, I can be more honest with Eric than anyone else in my life. And as long as we continue to be radically honest with each other, then everything's going to work out. So that was me speaking on behalf of you, Eli, but hopefully that rings true for, for why okay. we're able to do it and why we've never come close to folding our business. We've never come close to having a falling out as friends. You know, we almost came close to losing our business during COVID, but that had nothing to do with the fact that we're best friends. Yeah. The, the, the one thing I can say is maybe this is naive, but based on the conversations that we've had and the values that we've gotten very clear on for ourselves and the level of honesty, we allow ourselves to go. You should hear some of the shit we say to each other. The, <laughs> I, I can say with what feels like certainty that our friendship is not going to fail. Our business could, you never know what, the, what happens in the world, but our, our friendship is, is going to stand the test of time. I can say that with certainty and who knows what happens with the business. I think it's going to keep going. And I think we're offering people value, but you can't predict the future on that one. We disagree and debate all the time, though, all the time. But, but, but I would say we don't fight. We, we disagree. We don't fight. I'll give you, uh, sorry, sorry to keep going on this topic. It's an interesting one and we care a lot about it. Another one of our values is disagreement is fine. Disagreeability is not. Hmm. And like, I am calling these values. These are just sort of like beliefs that Eric and I have that we've agreed on. And so we, we can disagree on lots of things, but the moment we start seeing the disagreeability kick in, we like that's red flag. Like, okay, let's, let's come back at this because we're now letting the emotion and the ego get triggered. And we're now just doing this in a shitty way. And that's not going to serve any purpose. So we have certain things that we fall back on that help us do it effectively. Well, you, you, you both have a really great chemistry. I can see that it would be fun, welcoming for people to want to uh, participate in the different classes and workshops that uh, that you all offer. What are some of those uh, that are offered? People in here in Virginia are probably like, well, that's great. Uh, Zach and Tim, you had a couple guys from Toronto. What good is that for me? What, what different services do you offer? Well, we travel. We we uh, we actually met you because one of your friends and a guest on your podcast met us in Panama City. So we we definitely travel, but we do have tons of different programs ranging from in person to virtual to on demand. So that's us live with you in a room to us in a Zoom room together, or you just consume this course on your own. We've got options that span all different ways of uh, you know methods of consumption. And we have courses that tackle lots of different things. I mean, we've got like 90 minute crash courses, full day programs, two day programs, five day programs, if you really want to transform and maybe even become a professional speaker. So there's lots and lots of different ways to work with us. I would say our most popular program for sort of the optimal 
place between um, investing enough time, but not too much time and learning enough, but not too much. And, and getting a chance to actually interact and get feedback. Our most popular program is a two day course. We call it talk master core, where we teach folks how to become amazing storytellers. You're going to learn how to engage audiences with your body and voice. You're going to learn how to create a mass, a masterful slide deck, but more important and most important, you're going to develop a new relationship with public speaking and you're going to stop being so damn afraid. Imagine you don't need to lose sleep the night before every big presentation. That's ultimately what our program focuses on. And you won't need to drink a beer too. No, no. Liquid courage, optional, not required. I see. Is It sounds like there's also some ab workouts in there since you're doing core or? <laughs> That's actually what the whole thing is. It's an ab yeah, workout exactly. disguised as a public speaking course. Smart, smart. Like yeah. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. It. Men's Fitness is, uh, yeah. is, is mad at you guys for finally figuring out the special sauce. <laughs> I think the, oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. I have planes. I live, I live near an air force base. So uh, it's always a challenge when the jets are flying overhead. So just had to, had, had to wait for them to, to clear, to clear the home. What's um, as we wrap, what's something that we haven't talked about that you guys would like to talk about? Ooh, what an interesting question. I love it. I hope you wrap up that question with every single guest you have. We what do. And it's stolen. <laughs> that, that, that's Zach's, uh, go to we're trying to i could talk for hours with you guys but trying yeah. to be respectful of your time i'll i'll share one thought so so we built our entire business and our careers and it's a passion of ours to help people with public speaking and and we do it and we help with the different competencies and the different pillars and all that stuff and the confidence but if there's one insight i can offer actually let me let me offer two insights if there's two insights i can offer it's one I don't think there's a single skill that can make you better at everything you do than becoming a better public speaker. It will help you when you have to public speak. It will help you when you have to communicate, even if it's not a presentation in public speaking. And it will help you change the way you speak to yourself, not just to other people. So public speaking is a valuable skill. And I think the more people that really, really take a moment and think about that, and whether you do it through a course or a business, or you just spend a little bit of time and energy on your public speaking, it's going to add value to your life. So that's the first thing. Public speaking is incredibly important. The second thing I'll say is, even though we help people with it, even though there's lots of businesses and companies and tools out there to improve, it's important to recognize that public speaking isn't like a Rubik's Cube. Like when, when all the colors match, you're done. That's not how public speaking works. There is no finish line. There's always room for improvement. Eric and I are still trying to improve a ton. And I think that's an important recognition because sometimes people think, why am I not there yet? Well, there is no there. You got to go against yourself. What's the next step for you? The next step for you, the next step for you and keep moving the target and the name for that. I don't know that there's anything that I didn't speak about that I wanted to. So that's kudos to you as interviewers. What I want to do is just repeat something maybe, which is that anyone can be an amazing public speaker. I don't just think that I know that. And another thing I know is that public speaking is easy. Once you know what goes into it, once you get through all the clutter, and you actually see what's going on here. And like I said, maybe you need a course, maybe it's us, maybe it's another company, maybe you need a coach, maybe it's us, maybe it's another coach, but anyone can be amazing at this, anyone. And it's a lot easier than you think. That's, I hope what people take away. Well, I appreciate it. I, I'm gonna go back and listen to this a couple more times because uh, this is super, super beneficial for me. So I really appreciate you guys and the time that you, uh, that you gave us today. Thanks for Thank having us. Both. This was super fun. What are yeah. we going to do again?
Yeah, we'll have to uh, bring you guys down to Virginia and uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll call it all about down here. Fly. We'll just call it We the North. <laughs> that, sign me up. Sign me up. We'll, what did you call it to? originally? Like I don't. I don't even. He said, he said go north. I don't know. Go north. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Have you seen you that one? You? you have the one season when the Raptors win it all, and then you just you just forget about it because you guys haven't been anything since. Is that why? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's sort of why. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cut deep there, pal. You cut deep. I I apologize. <laughs> Any, anywho, appreciate y'all's time. That was wonderful, and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you both. The Thanks for having us, folks.